Want to create memories with your family? Do you have a desire to bring your family closer together? Are vacations lacking that special something you want your family to have? Tropic of Candy Corn is your resource for smarter, sweeter family travel. Learn from other families, be inspired, and encourage others with your weekend getaway and vacation ideas. Tropic of Candy Corn. This isn't a travel sales site. It's something new and different. A community to help bring your family closer through travel. Join us today at www.tropicofcandycorn.com. It's free and it's fun. Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Nyla McBain, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. Good, good. Glad to have you on. Uh, we're going to talk today with Nylan about her book, Women at Church, Magnifying LDS Women's Local Impact. The book is awesome, Nylan. I just appreciate uh, you putting this together. I uh, I want to start off by giving you just a chance to share kind of a brief bio about yourself. Uh, certainly, yes. I um, I currently live in Salt Lake City. I'm the mom of three daughters, and uh, I work in advertising. But before uh, Salt Lake, my family and I lived in, um, uh, well, San Francisco, Boston, and New York. And New York was a return for me from my childhood there, where I grew up until I left for college. Um, I grew up in Manhattan, and uh, I was the only daughter of a part member family. My mother was a very active member, but um, my father was not. And um, I also was the daughter of a of a professional opera singer. So the fact that she, you know, had a a, a significant career uh, and was always sort of accepted and praised and embraced for that by our church community and by the general leadership of the church as well was always really significant to me and has become much more significant to me as I grew up uh, because I realized that that was that was pretty unusual and uh, it certainly gave me a foundation that I, I'm drawing on today in all of these conversations about gender issues in the church. Awesome. I, I know that obviously within Mormonism right now, there's a lot of discussion going on in regards to, to women's issues, LGBT issues, and they tend to be, I think, more at the forefront now than, than perhaps ever before in some ways. And You've written this book, and it would be maybe a silly question to say why you've written it with all this that's being spoken about, but really, what was the impetus for putting the book together? <laughs> um, I was asked to, <laughs> and uh, uh, specifically, the Coford books asked me to, and at the time, I just thought they were nuts. Like, I, you know, I I didn't even think that it was something that I, I wanted to tackle at all, and um, they kept asking, and then I really had a couple of... Um, sort of 
powerful experiences, a couple of, um, oh, specifically a conference I went to for work, uh, that was about Christian entrepreneurship that, uh, really sparked my, um, my sense that I could do this and that it would be important and that I could actually have something to say that, um, put a, a new framework around the discussion. Uh, and so, you know, it was a series of some kind of small and large events like that that kind of gave me the confidence to delve in. And uh, I started the book in January of 2014, so exactly a year ago. And I finished it uh, the first week of June, and uh, which was which was fast. But I mean, you know, I I have to say I spent I, I sort of worked concurrently uh, on the first part of the book while I collected stories for the second part of the book. So uh, I kind of multitasked in that way. And I also had been writing the book in my head for years. You know, these are these are things that I had been working on and talking about for years. And so um, it, it flowed pretty naturally. And uh, as you said, I mean, you know, it is such a, a hot topic that it's it, the subject matter and why I would write on the subject matter is pretty evident. But I think it was really meaningful to me, too, also to have the book or have you know, be able to submit the manuscript and then two weeks later receive the news of Kate Kelly's disciplinary council. So it was written in a kind of quiet time for the gender discussions. Um, ordained women did their second walk on Temple Square during the time I was writing the book. But in general, it was a little bit quieter um, than certainly the times around the Let Women Pray or Wear Pants to Church movements. And of course, then the summer events, which followed right after I submitted the manuscript. I realize that in a book like this, you have to kind of walk a line and, and obviously if you're, you're exploring critical thought in the book, you're doing that and yet you're not overly critical. How did you manage to do that? How did you manage to walk a line that would appeal to people on both sides and kind of keep that on the forefront of your mind as you went through the book? Well, I think, um, I, I, I was trained from an early age to always be able to parse out the, the principles that actions are based on and then what those actual actions are. And we sometimes call this doctrine versus culture or practice versus principle. And, and I think it's, um, you know, it's a conversation we're having a little bit more rigorously these days, which I think is good. But, um, I, I think for me, I felt very comfortable examining our behaviors and our practices and, are, you know, what I would call our cultural culture, meaning those symbolic actions that are meant to transfer knowledge of principles from one person to another or from, you know, one age group to another, but they are not the principles themselves. And um, so I, I felt comfortable looking at what those symbolic actions actually are and essentially, you know, trying to analyze them rigorously for their effectiveness in trans, in actually transferring those principles. Uh, and when I did that, you know, I, I think in anybody who does that, uh, whether, you know, with that kind of academic rigor or just instinctively, we'll see that there are places that um, the principles that we wish to be conveying to younger members of the church or to each other uh, sometimes are not the focus of our actions and sometimes get um, obfuscated in the actions. And that's really that was really my approach. And, you know, as the, as the, the, the framework for those actions and what is necessary, what is absolutely mandatory and what is not, I used the handbook too. And, um, you know, this, I guess this could be said to be a somewhat of an arbitrary standard of orthodoxy, but it's, you know, in, in a non-credal religion, it's really 
what we have. And so the challenge of the book, what I tried to do was, was look at the handbook, not as, you know, a manual of thou shalt nots, meaning, you know, if it's not in the handbook, then we can't do it. Rather, I tried to look at the handbook and say, okay, well, if it's not in the handbook, then it's fair game if it's the appropriate thing to do for the people under our stewardship. Yeah, and let's set that up a little bit. So there are members of the church who feel like when it comes to church positions, the Lord rarely ever makes a change within the church, that the God is the same yesterday and today and forever, and hence the church reflects that. And I think in some ways the church as an institution likes to have that perception because it it keeps people comfortable. But at the same time, many things within the church have changed. And and I want to ask you in regards to women's issues or how women's roles have been defined. Maybe kind of help us set up a little bit of the book by just sharing with us in our history how some of our, uh, how some of the ways in which we've handled these things have changed. Yeah, I, one of the, one of the, um, funny things <coughs> that, um, kind of came out of last summer's events were the comments on the bloggernacle and, you know, and, and in person. When I would hear somebody say, you know, oh, you know, these, these uppity women today, we've never, you know, we've never had women like this before and this is embarrassing and, and women in other, other faiths aren't doing this. And, and so it, the, those comments did kind of make me laugh because our faith specifically has a, a, you know, rich, rich history of gender relations. I mean, from the day it was organized, we, you know, there's very few religions, um, you know, and certainly ours is unusual because it's so young, but there's few religious, you know, uh, uh, origin stories where a woman is so, and the wife of the founder is so integrated into the origin story as Emma Smith is into ours. And that was just the beginning, of course, you know, I mean, you have in the first few years of the church, you've got um, these women actively participating and, and then you've got polygamy and, you know, some of the initial um, really, really, you know, to the mat challenges that the church faced were about gender issues in the form of polygamy. You know, how do men and women work together to build the kingdom of God? And what does their partnership look like in, you know, the, the sort of celestial um, realms of that, of that kingdom? And uh, I, I, so I don't, I, I think, it, you know, I don't think it's possible to really to overstate how important gender relations always have been to the church. Uh, and, and I also talk in the book about the conversations around women's participation in priesthood ordinances, or not necessarily in priesthood ordinances, but in just some things that appear to be off limits today, uh, really were very vibrant in the beginning church. So specifically, um, women's involvement around the, uh, around healing blessings and the, and laying on hands and anointing preparatory to, you know, birth, childbirth and things like that. And these things were, these were, were just commonplace, these kinds of, of blessings. And people think, oh, yes, maybe that was in our past, but, you know, that's not relevant today or remotely a modern in its practice. And the truth is that there was a conversation around the appropriateness of that for a hundred years. You know, um, Joseph mentions it uh, quite a number of times in the minutes that uh, record the founding of the Relief Society. And he says very firmly that there's nothing wrong with women laying on hands. And yet it is not until, um, you know, 1920 or 19, I think it's the early 1930s when um, it's actually uh, officially phased out as a practice. And then it's really practiced unofficially through the 1940s. In fact, some of our apostles 
mothers uh, are, are on record as having practiced these kinds of healing blessings. So, you know, um, to, and then, of course, we have all of the social movements. We have the act, uh, active participation in suffrage, the the temporal uh, behemoth of, you know, the Relief Society's service around grain storage and cooperative stores and training midwives and setting up hospitals. And, you know, this this was a this was a group of women who were in a constant negotiation for their place in the kingdom and what their their particular responsibilities and particular purpose would be. And uh, and I just you know, I think our conversations today are it would, it's naive to think that they are just sort of the, the you know, sudden uprisings of a group of uppity women. I know. I mean, <laughs> this is this is the continuity uh, that we've been experiencing. This is a continuation of, of our of our whole history. That said, you know, um, you, you're talking about change in the church change for our people, despite some, you know, major, major differences between the church now and the initial church that have come, of course, by no other means than by simply change. Um, change for us as a people has to feel like continuity in order for us globally to embrace it. And I think that that's because it's this, it's the most comfortable way that we negotiate, um, you know, consistency, God, divine consistency, sort of an ever, ever reliable and, and, and um, all knowing God with the promise of, of continuing revelation. And when we say that we believe in a God that's leading the church, we have to feel like those evolutions are a result of his guiding hand. And I think the way we feel most comfortable with that is to see change as continuity. It's an actual outgrowth of what we as a people believe to be the new moral mandate. Change results when there's a new morality that we have to embrace in order to feel like we're still following God's will. And um, I think that's what we're in the process of figuring out right now with the women's discussion. Are we yet at a new moral mandate from God that we need to change our behavior to be in line with him. That's, that's beautiful. And I totally agree with you that it feels like at least a large chunk of the church has to have this kind of slow change, as you point out, so that members can feel this continuity as things move along. But at the same time, too, one would wonder at times if, you know, if the church is led by God, and I believe it is, if the church is led by God, that once in a while there would be this dramatic and drastic change that would just be a complete shift from what everybody is thinking, because obviously God's will and mind and, and the way he thinks of things is not quite how each of us maybe put things together. And so sometimes we should perhaps have some of those surprise revelations. I'm all in favor of surprise revelations, yes. But I do think that, you know, certainly in the apostles' minds today, their priority is to lead the body of Christ so that when a door opens, we as a people are ready to walk through it so that, that we, they, we lose as few people or as few limbs as possible when that door opens. So, you know, I I, I never would suggest that, that, you know, there is no possibility of, of a sudden change. But I think uh, the apostles' mandate as sort of the shepherds of this body of Christ are really to keep us together, to focus on the journey as much as the destination, and to make sure that we don't lose anybody along the way. 
Yeah, I like that. And I think that's really true. I, as I look around at some of these these issues that are out there that are making uh, the most noise, it's obvious that if a drastic change happened, there would be a large chunk of membership on one side of that spectrum who who would uh, in some ways um, perhaps have their foundation shift too much. I think so. Yep. In the book, you talk about reasonable changes that the church could make things that we could do that would easily increase the visibility of sisters in the church, uh, specifically sisters within leadership positions. I wondered if just for a moment, if you might talk about some of those that you, uh, that you mentioned. Yeah. One of the, one of the happiest things about writing the book was that even as I was writing it, uh, I could point to things that the general church leadership was doing uh, that was very much in line with my sort of um, focus on, optics and and female narratives specifically i'm talking about um of course having a woman praying conference but but things like um moving all of the apostles wives up to the stand and um moving all the female general officers from over to the side to right in the middle uh behind the cameras and behind the 12 apostles and um things like putting their pictures up in the conference center putting their pictures up in the ensign and having the women's meeting become an official session and calling these um uh the international uh board to the young women's organization and and um you know all of those things happened around the time that I was thinking about or writing the book and and one of the things that I I point out in the book is that a lot of these things we don't do on the local level so for instance um you know on in a state conference do we regularly have the state relief society president speak in gen- in state conference um, as the representative of all of the women in that state. We all, you know, the state president always speaks and a member of his council, uh, one of his counselors usually speaks. But, you know, is there a regular slot where we can have our local congregations become familiar with their local female leaders? And again, you know, do you have all of them sit up on the stand and stake stake and ward conferences? Do you have their pictures in the stake offices like we have them in the conference center? Um, these things kind of don't even occur to a lot of us on the local level. Um, you know, one, one primary president I talked to last weekend was telling me about how she had read the book and decided that in her primary room where they have pictures of all of the 12 apostles, individual framed portraits of each of the 12 apostles with the first presidency, she wanted to add the primary general presidency so that the kids could see who their global leaders are. And um, she told me this really funny story about the, how she had the darndest time finding pictures of these women that she could print out in 8 by 10 and frame. And um, she went to Desert Books. She went to the distribution center. And finally, she just went to LDS.org, and she, like, copied and pasted their little thumbnail portrait from one of their conference talks. And she Photoshopped it and, like, printed it herself and framed it. And then she went to her primary room when nobody was there and hung it um, so that every ward would think the other ward had done it, <laughs> you know. And she just was actually talking about what a great change it had made in their primary, both for the teachers and for the kids and how the children had mentioned it. And they're like, look, those are our, those are our leaders, you know, and they, they were the little girls specifically were taking such, such pride in seeing those women up there. And, um, you know, I, I think that the visibility issue is so much more than just tokenism. It's training our daughters um, and our sons to see women as ecclesiastical leaders and as theological authorities um, where authority means the expectation of influence, where, you know, we can, our girls can expect their voice to have influence in theological, um, and ecclesiastical discussions, perhaps not, um, 
you know, administrative discussions yet beyond the significant uh, input of the ward council and things like that. But there is a there is a, a voice that can be developed and a sort of inner authority that can be developed by by making sure that we are quoting from and including women's voices in all of our lessons and showing our girls um, that there are female leaders in the church. Right now, the primary manuals um, stories are 87% about boys and Preach My Gospel, the missionary manual, has no quotes by women in it and no stories that are specifically about women. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that we as members can take on ourselves to really rectify in our local environments where we have control. Yeah, you know, obviously being somewhat sensitive to to the issues that are out there, I fully admit, right, I know who my stake president is. I know his name. I know both of his counselors by name. I know some of the bishops in the stake. I certainly know my bishop, but I don't know who the Relief Society president of the stake is. And not because I don't care, but because as you point out, the visibility there with uh, with the primary presidency, the, the stake primary president, stake young women's presidency, even even some of the auxiliaries like stake young men and uh, in Relief Society, for as we're talking about, we don't really make a point to make those leaders as visible. And because sisters find themselves entirely in the auxiliaries of the church, then essentially it's almost kind of a, a side item that never seems to be put at the forefront. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And my, I would argue that, you know, um, the Relief Society presidency specifically should, should never be considered uh, as one of those auxiliaries. Um, I mean, I know we use that word and I wish we had a different term for it. And language is something that is rife for upheaval um, in the way we talk about these women and their groups. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, the Relief Society presidency and the bishopric should be working hand in hand and should be seen as working hand in hand. Yeah. Amen to that. You, uh, you talk in the book about um, just women in general and, and some of the, the feelings, I guess, that, that sisters have. I guess I want to point to this. So we've got these recent essays that have come out. They've, the church has, I, I would call this in some ways monumental for the first time in the church's own, um, periodicals, its own, uh, website is really trying to disclose issues that it's never really talked much about before, such as polyandry, um, young brides that Joseph had, uh, Emma's awareness or unawareness of of what was going on and it often seems like whenever i'm having discussions with with brethren in the church in talking to them about this issue so say we're in priesthood we're having a lesson and i say you know we're having a conversation about um elder oaks talk about the women in the priesthood and as we're having that conversation i'll raise my hand and say hey guys are we aware of you know some of the things that the sisters think about and ponder on and when i raise these kinds of issues the the brethren that I talk to, almost to a T, seem to kind of see these issues as, nah, it's not really that big of a deal. Yet, I think these issues deeply impact our sisters, and I wonder if you might speak for a moment about how the sisters in the church, at least the ones you've spoken to, feel about some of these controversial issues that seem to, in many ways, could be taken as um, putting sisters in a position in church history where perhaps... In some ways, you know, even even if we admit that, you know, say, hey, Joseph received a revelation, polygamy was a commandment, it had to happen. In some ways, the way in which Joseph instituted that, I think, can be seen as bothersome to some sisters. And I wanted to get your feelings on, on the how we handle our history, both from a female perspective, as well as maybe sometimes men brushing that off. Yeah, I, I think um, 
You know, it, one of the reasons that I think um, men in particular don't understand that the church experience is very different for women than it is for men is that uh, we men and women have not done a good enough job in really um, uh, actually talking about and, and being and expressing how different that experience is. And that is because uh, I'm not sure women have felt um, comfortable actually exploring the depth of how different it is for women than it is for men. And what happens, I think, is when you don't explore the depth of how different it is, then it sort of, um, you know, bubbles in you subconsciously. And you know about things like polygamy, but there's no place to really actually say, wow, that that has a huge impact on me as a Mormon woman, because uh, I don't know for sure whether or not I will have to share my husband someday. I mean, that is the that's the reality that all Mormon women live with. And I don't think we've thoroughly investigated the, the spiritual and psychological impact that that's had. And I don't think women have done that because it's not doesn't feel safe to do that. It, it's there's there hasn't been um, a discourse around how women's experiences in the church are different, and especially in a, in a place that promotes faith while having that discourse. Um, that discourse has been seen as unfaithful or heretical in the past, or you're simply judged by other women for expressing those concerns. So, um, you know, men, it's much safer for those men who are comfortable talking about these things. And there are a lot of them. And I've been so encouraged by how much support, in fact, more support I've received from men um, than women on this subject. That um, it can be much safer for men to talk about these things. You know, I've been, I've been in recent talks. I've been giving an example of an elders' quorum lesson that happened in my own ward, and I don't know the teacher of this lesson, and he doesn't know me. But uh, a few weeks ago, when when the elders' quorum lesson was on the, I think it was called the role. Uh, Roles and Responsibilities of the Latter-day Saint Woman. It was in the Joseph Fielding Smith Manual in December, one of the last lessons. The teacher in my ward brought out, brought out Patriarchy Bingo, which is one of those um, mental exercises that ordained women posted on their website. And each of the boxes in Patriarchy Bingo is a symptom, as they call them, of growing up in a patriarchal culture. And it's things like all the all the you know, all of your spiritual heroes that you were taught to look up to were men. You were, um, men, boys were taught to prepare for a career. Women were taught to prepare for child raising, things like that. And, um, and their conclusion, they had a great discussion in my elders' form. <laughs> my husband was in it. And it was a very stimulating discussion. And they all came out to me afterwards. They were excited. You know, the students who know who I am were excited to uh, talk with me about it. And they all said, you know, we were so excited to realize that um, almost all of the symptoms are things that we can control, that we can influence, that we can change circumstances for our wives and daughters. We can, um, you know, put more female role models in front of them. We can teach them that they have the opportunity to develop their whole person and not just um, their, their mothering capabilities, you know. And, um, you know, no such similar lesson occurred in Relief Society that day. Um, you know, despite there being an opening and an invitation to talk about women's roles in the church, uh, the Relief Society lesson that day was, was very middle, you know, very traditional, very middle of the road, very safe. Um, and, and so I think, you know, women feel, uh, like there's much more at risk for them to actually 
uh, talk about and express some of these things that cause this this cognitive tension between um, you know some of the things that they are being uh, taught might happen to them specifically around polygamy and some of the ways that they're being treated at church or being included and seen and what they might instinctively um, you know feel is right or or maybe in or or the way that they're being treated in a in a office or school or government setting um, and so you know because of judgment of other women because of not feeling uh, like um, it's safe to uh, talk about these things while still expressing faith or not really understanding how talking about these things can be an expression of faith uh, I think that that women tend not to have these conversations with each other or with their husbands or with with other men yeah and I, I think the more that we have these conversations, the more that we talk about these kinds of things, the more, as you point out, the more awareness we've got. You, um, you, let me put it this way. My, my wife, and I don't want me to throw her under the bus at all, but my wife is one of those, uh, who, when we're talking, and I'll have these conversations about women's issues and about some of the progress we're making in the church, and, and she'll kind of put her foot down and be like, oh, I would just wish we could just keep things the way they were, essentially. And, I think one of the stories you tell in the book is about a Relief Society president when she reads the Relief Society minutes for the first time and the experience that is that that is for her. And I, and I think that's an important story because often we we talk and we say things and we speak up and share a point of view, but perhaps more time could be spent delving into the history of these matters to realize how they're framed. And maybe that would open our eyes. And I wondered if you might share that story with us. Yes, yeah, so I, uh, one of the many people that I interviewed for the book was a Stake Relief Society president who actually, uh, was, um, uh, working with, I can't remember if she was working with or actually herself, uh, or was friends with the woman who was working with the Church History Museum, um, on a, an exhibit about the Relief Society back in 2007. And as part of that, um, exhibit, they brought the Relief Society minutes from the church archives to be part of that exhibit. And this was before those minutes were made publicly available through the Joseph Smith papers and through the Deseret book, um, beginning of better days book. Um, <coughs> and, and so she had an opportunity to pour over these minutes in private without them, you know, before they were really publicly accessible. And she just, she talked to me in, in you know, in such moving language about the impact that these minutes had on her and the, and learning for the first time that women had performed healing blessings, that women had been, um, given this, you know, a very special mandate and a special purpose within church administration to, um, to care for the poor and needy and to really be the stewards of the church's temporal welfare and all of those things that are revealed in in the myths uh, just gave her a whole new sense of her identity as a Mormon woman. And, and and I know that since those minutes have come out, there's been an increased conversation about what that early religious society might have looked like. And Julie Beck, um, in her presidency, I think, did a fantastic job of drawing attention to that early history and to what that Relief Society looked like initially and, and, um, the, the power that, that can come from, from Relief Society. And she talked a lot about, 
um, the power of ministry, which is a word that we don't really talk about regarding women in the church. Um, but she used it a lot and she talked a lot about the, the early church history and of course oversaw the publication of, um, Daughters of My Kingdom, which is, I think, a hugely underutilized, uh, book in the church. Uh, but, you know, just its sheer existence was a, a wonderful feature of her presidency. So, um, you know, I think keeping those conversations alive and actually asking ourselves, you know, what, what is different between Relief Society today and the earliest, early days? Um, and also, uh, how has Relief Society changed between even the time that, you know, our mothers were growing up and now? Because, um, there are significant and important changes, differences between Relief Society today and Relief Society in sort of the mid-century era when the Relief Society manual was written by the Relief Society general board and Relief Societies were responsible for their own um, budgeting, their own budgets, and also their own fundraising, which really spurred on innovative and challenging product projects um, and, and a number of things like that that, um, that, re- that women my age today don't really get to enjoy. Yeah, you know, in the church, of course, throughout its history, like as you point out early on, the Relief Society had a lot more control over its own organization. And in some ways, I think the church has made an effort to get back to some of those original teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith and to let go of maybe some of the deviations that we've, we've made along the way. But yet in some things, it seems like there's a resistance to that or a hesitancy to even consider such things. You, you mentioned there the, the control relief society had uh, over its organization, but you also mentioned blessings of healing and that being an early event that you know, factually took place in early church history that we got away from. Where do you see as far as us having room to go back to some of those things as we move forward? When we talk about, I, I think it's a, I think it's a very dangerous place to get into to say that everything in the church today is just the way the Lord wants it because we have a prophet and therefore, um, all is to his liking. I, you know, I, I think first of all, um, that's simply not true. I don't, you know, I think you can believe in prophetic communication with God, communication between God and a spokesman on earth. And I don't think you have to believe that that spokesman is aware of and approving of everything that's going on in our local worship practices. I think those are very different things. Um, I, and I don't believe that God is uh, entirely happy with the way everything is being managed in the church today. In fact, we know that he really has never been happy with everything uh, that he sees in the church. In 1831, um, Doctrine and Covenants section 50 and some of the sections around it uh, talk about uh, how the Lord has looked upon his church and I see abominations in those who profess my name. And this is in 1831, and he repeats that sentiment a couple times in those in those sections. And, you know, at a time when you would think that the church would be in its most close communication with its divine, you know, originator, um, there are abominations. And so I think how much more today you need, do we need to be humble and accepting and willing to recognize that things are all not like to the Lord, all not to the Lord's liking. And we can express confidence in prophetic guidance while still claiming responsibility for the way things are being practiced on uh, the local levels. And um, I think when we claim that all is to the Lord's liking and that any questioning or any um, exploration of, of, of change in, in 
policies or practices uh, threatens the divine order of things, I think we are essentially abdicating our responsibility to be the, you know, uh, joint owners and joint um, managers of this church along with Jesus Christ. Um, it's not just the church of Jesus Christ. It's the church of us as well, of the Latter-day Saints. And um, I feel I feel very strongly about that. And, and I think it's um, I think it's damaging to to not be willing to embrace that responsibility and embrace our co-partnership with our leaders in managing this church. Yeah, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head there. You know, it feels like often that we look back at history of the church, and we're speaking today with Nyla McBain, uh, author of Women at Church, Magnifying LDS Women's Local Impact. It feels like when we look back at history, it's easy to say, yeah, you know, we were wrong on some of those race theories, or yeah, we were we were wrong on these uh, dynastical ceilings that we did early on. And, and to recognize, okay, so we fixed that and to think, okay, so all is well and good and we're all in this perfect place where things are right. But also to step back and realize that a hundred years from now, those same kinds of problems we saw a hundred years ago that got fixed, we'll re- realize then that there were also issues now that need to be corrected. Yes. Yes. I, I often stop and try and sit back and think about that and wonder what those things will be. You know, I mean, we do that in every, every industry, right? I mean, um, science and medicine, good heavens. It's where, you know, who knows what we'll be looking back and squirming at, you know, in a hundred years. Wow. We can't believe we did that. Um, I mean, that's, that's the nature of, you know, evolutionary beings as we were, you know, seeking out what God wants for us and coming closer to being like God, both in an earthly sense and in a spiritual sense. So two last questions for you. One, I want to certainly leave a lot for people to to explore as they read the book, but maybe if you could just hit at a point or two, what are some things that we could do going forward that would not require doctrinal change, but would allow sisters to to have, uh, you know, beyond the things we've already spoken of, to have more involvement uh, within the church? Uh, well, I'll talk about two things specifically. First is sort of generally the young women. I think there's, I think young women, it's just probably the most fertile area, one of the most fertile areas for increasing the optics. Um, you know, we, a, a traditional ward member will probably be able to recognize the young man in his ward, um, at least pick him out of a lineup because he sees them every Sunday passing the sacrament. And in my ward, you know, they pass out the programs and they also hold the, the, um, microphones for testimony meeting you know in some words they go around and they collect fast offerings you know um and and the young women are are not to be seen in that same way oh in addition the whole word my whole word right now isn't actively involved with the local grocery store in a boy scout fundraiser um you know so so you just look at all the equivalencies with young women or the lack of equivalencies with young women and those are opportunities um the activity days program is nowhere near as robust, well funded, um, or well advertised as the Boy Scouts. Um, it doesn't have that nostalgic and heritage connection to mothers and daughters the way Boy Scouts does with fathers and sons. Um, there's a, a profound lack of parity there. Um, also, visibility of, of girls um, among the ward members. You know, there's been lots of different solutions to this. Uh, have the girls sing. Um, 
acquire a number every every month so that they at least are up in front of the congregation once a month. They have, you know, some wards have turned them into the um, the ushers for sacrament meeting, they're responsible for handing out the programs, they're responsible um, for holding the microphones during testimony. Some have actually um, had the young women be responsible for sharing the announcements at the beginning of um, sacrament meeting. I've heard all of those variations. Um in one ward, they're baking the bread uh, or responsible for bringing the bread for the sacrament so that at the end of the sacrament, the bishop um, can get up and say, we think we're thankful to the young man and the young women for preparing the sacrament for us today. Uh, you know, people are people are really exploring all sorts of things around the visibility and inclusion of, of young women, which I think is a wonderful. And, and again, I'm not advocating, you know, I don't I don't think one of those practices over the others, you know, has to be done. But uh, I think, you know, my my focus is always on the journey, on the exploration of what that would look like. And can we challenge ourselves to come up with some of these ideas that are right for the people in our stewardship? And the other major thing I would talk about is the um, Relief Society and the purpose of Relief Society and the way the Relief Society um, functions as an administrative organization. So whereas, you know, people like Elder Oaks have made it very clear that the keys and authority of the priesthood uh, currently do reside with men, and therefore men are responsible for you know, the ordinances that um, result in uh, relationships and, and statuses sort of be recorded on the books of heaven, uh, you know, women have this wonderful legacy of, of um, uh, temporal, uh, temporal administration um, as not just being the spiritual nurturers of each other, but actually caring for the temporal welfare of the people. And in the book, I include a case study, which is, which is one of my favorite things about the book, of a stake that's um, created a new position for Relief Society women, and um, it's the missionary service coordinator. And this release, this woman is responsible for populating the 10 hours of humanitarian service that the missionaries in her area perform each week. And it's just transformed the wards and stakes in that area. And it's transformed the women's visions of themselves. And um, so you just have to read the book to find out all the details about it. But um, the I think tapping into the huge, vast potential of the Relief Society uh, and giving it, you know, a concrete purpose uh, today is one of the most crucial things we can do. Yeah, and, and I want to be clear. Obviously, your book doesn't, and I'm not trying to frame things in a way that we're saying the church has to change on this or that, but rather, like you say, explore the possibilities. Yeah, awesome. These are all just ideas people are trying, and some of them are working and some of them are not, but, you know, it's that it's that willingness to say, you know, something something's got to give here. Something needs to change, and we can try things that I think is so healthy. Excellent. The uh, The last question I want to ask is an easy one. Where can people find the book? Desert Bookstores, uh, Amazon.com, and Coford Books, Greg Coford Books. Wonderful. Nyla McBain, thank you for taking a few minutes of your day to spend with us and appreciate the work that you put in to, to help further this uh, discussion. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you.